Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Good to see you guys. Uh, My name is uh, Chuck Eastman, if you don't know me yet. And uh, Pastor Tim is on vacation. And so I get a chance to bring the word again. You know, before I get into this, I just wanted to say, um, you know, years ago, um, I was living in Arkansas and um, I was working as a youth pastor. And uh, there was this buzz in Little Rock, Arkansas that this guy named Tim Lundy had been in California, but he was coming back to Arkansas. And uh, there was just, this, everybody knew who Tim Lundy was. And at my church and our church staff was like, did you know Tim Lundy is coming back to Arkansas? And I was like, who is Tim Lundy? I didn't know, you know? And so uh, I went and watched him online and I was like, man, this guy is such a good Bible teacher. And uh, it was just kind of awesome to watch that. And then it happened to be a few weeks uh, later that I was in a Starbucks and I saw Tim Lundy and I walked up to him and I said, hey man, um, I've watched you on video and everybody I know is talking about you. And I'm just really thankful for the way you faithfully teach the Bible. And uh, guys, we have an awesome lead pastor who teaches the Bible faithfully. Can we just honor him uh, this morning? So thankful for him. Uh, also, a lot of people don't know this, um, but you know, I got married a year ago, and my wife grew up her junior high, high school years. She grew up under the teaching ministry of Tim Lundy in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so, at the time, uh, years ago when she was doing that, I was a struggling single, and I had no idea that God was going to bring me a wife and bring me to California, and that would link both of our stories up uh, to this church and to our pastor. And so, I'm just personally really thankful for the ministry of Pastor Tim. Um, This morning, I wanna talk about what's so compelling about Christian uh, community. And uh, to get into that a little bit, um, years ago when I was in college, uh, in 2003, uh, some friends of mine said, hey, we need to go to Sherman, Texas. And I was like, what's in Sherman, Texas? And they said, hey, there's gonna be this huge Christian, kind of Christian Woodstock, Christian concert called Passion. And so you need to come with us and we're gonna go to that. And there are these speakers, they threw out these names, some people like Beth Moore and John Piper and Louis Giglio, and they threw out names I didn't know. And uh, then there's gonna be all these like music people, all the who's who's of the Christian music scene of like the, the 90s and the early 2000s. And I knew them, you know, cause I was homeschooled. And so, So I thought, okay, just gotta throw a homeschool joke in there once in a while. So we go down to Sherman, Texas and we get on this grassy field. We're gonna be outside and we get on this field and there's 50,000 college students on this grassy field in Sherman, Texas. And it's awesome. And as far as you can see, there's college students and it's awesome. And um, we're just super excited. And on the first day that we were there, we were kind of getting ready you know, for the next day. We'd gotten there like a day early and all the students were getting there and setting up their tents and stuff. And around four o'clock, um, I kind of was away from uh, our group, I'd gone over to the whole island of porta potties where you had to go to the bathroom for 50,000 people. And I was over there. And while I was over there, I heard this screaming, not screaming like, woohoo, good music. I heard this like terrified screaming. And I was like, what is going on? And it wasn't one or two people, it was like thousands of people screaming. And, and I came out and I looked and I saw from the 
from the sky to the ground, a black wall moving across the field. And, uh, and it was, you couldn't see through it. And the, the temperature had changed instantly like that. And so I was like, man, if I don't find my crew, um, I'll never find them once this rain hits. And so I raced to where my group was. There was about 25 of us all together. And so I raced to where they had put their tents and I got there just before the rain hit. And then from four o'clock till about three in the morning, nonstop, it rained like sideways, cold rain. I think the storm was like right on our field and it blew our clothes everywhere and it was freezing cold and there was like lightning like striking the, the ground and we were like terrified and we were wet and we were cold and we were trying to grab onto tarps and fight back against the elements, but it's kind of hopeless. I mean, the rain was literally felt like it was coming from every direction. You couldn't see your own hand. And finally at one point, me and a couple of the guys, we'd, you know, we'd brought a tent that we were gonna stay in, a little three-person uh, tent. And uh, we were like, okay, let's just try to like get in our tent. And so I, we crawled into this. Now, it was kind of funny because the wind had, I mean, there was no way the tent was gonna stay up. So we're literally climbing into, you know, plastic stuff that's laying on top of our face and everything. And uh, the two guys I was with were both over six foot tall. Okay, so five foot three Chuck, one of the guys grown up in Arkansas in the sticks, his name was Bub. He was the hairiest person I think I've ever met to this day. And we crawled into that tent and uh, we got in there and we were trying to get warm and the rain was beating us. Like the, the tent didn't even stop the rain. We were just laying in water, we were so cold and none of us were sleeping. And finally we kind of all looked at each other. I mean, just eye contact. And all of a sudden I realized there's only one way to get warm. <laughs> Next thing I know, Bub put his arms around me. <laughs> and the other guy reached on for the other side. I always put the short guy in the middle. <laughs> Why is the short guy always in the middle? And they put their arms around me and they held me tight. And I got warm. <laughs> I got so warm. But I put my head on Bub's chest and I fell asleep <laughs> in the middle of that storm. You know, I think that story is a great example of maybe how many of us feel in our culture. I think to say that we've been in a storm and are still in a storm culturally would maybe be an understatement. Whether it's the pandemic that never seems to go away, uh, whether it's the way you look at the economy around us and you're wondering if you can make ends meet, whether you look out on the world stage and you see threats and, and talks of a third world war and, and all the things that are going on and you can look at that and, and it just seems like an unending storm. Like we just can't see our way through and the idea that there's gonna be something on the other end of that kind of doesn't seem real or possible. And, and maybe in the middle of all of that, you feel wet and cold, and I think many people in the room probably feel alone. In fact, I know that because the studies say that, that we're the loneliest generation that they know of since we started studying that. Gen Zers in particular rate themselves as the most lonely group of people in our culture. Of course, we see numbers, men particularly rate themselves as lonely, particularly if they hit 60 years old or over. 
young moms with kids. This has been a, a, an incredibly difficult season for parents with kids, feel incredibly lonely. Single moms have the loneliness of being a young mom on top of being alone and not having a partner. And just everywhere you look, people are struggling and they're alone. And, and I, it's interesting because uh, my undergrad was in psychology and we used to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs all the time. And what's happening is that one of our core needs has been kind of struck at in these days. And you know, Maslow says that your basic foundational need uh, is physiological, like you need to eat you need water, you need shelter. And then it moves up to being safe. You need safety, right? You can't hardly make good decisions if you don't feel safe. But then he said the very next layer is belonging in love. Belonging in love is one of our core needs. It's very difficult to make good decisions in the world around us if we don't have belonging in love. And of course, that's kind of what you see. The more isolated people are, the more they engage in risk-taking behavior and they do things that aren't wise. And so we, we see all that around us. And I think the question I wanna ask uh, this morning is, will any kind of belonging do? Will any kind of community fix it? In other words, is, do you just need to find a better bowling league? Is, is your, um, you know, I, I go to CrossFit, I'm not an athlete by the way, but, but I go to CrossFit just to do something and CrossFit's a community and a lot of people kind of treat it like it's like their church and will that do? Will, will that cut it and meet us at the need we have for belonging? Will your chess club work? I'm not, nothing, any of these are bad, but will they, will they meet the need that we have for belonging, and I, and I think I wanna suggest this morning, um, I don't think they will. They, I don't think they will. So I, I just gonna wanna make I have three hopes, I think, uh, this morning that I wanna lay out for us. The first hope I have this morning is I wanna describe the radical goodness that can be found in a community of Jesus followers that would cause those exploring questions of faith to be curious and courageous enough to lean in. And I just wanna hang out there for a second. If you're processing questions of faith, if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, if someone dragged you here, if someone's been pestering you, my wife says I'm pestery a lot. And Christians, we can be kind of pestery. I apologize ahead of time. And if you're not sure you know Jesus, and you're questioning and you're wondering, I, I just wanna say enough, I wanna explain the radical goodness of Christian community that would make you maybe curious to try to lean in a little bit. And the reason I say courageous is because I know how terrifying it is. I know how terrifying it is if you don't know the inside talk, if you aren't quite sure what the lingo is. I, I was talking to a student uh, a few weeks ago that was curious and maybe was interested in trying one of our Bible studies and basically just said, honestly, like, you know, I don't know, I'm, I don't know the Bible answers. And there's a real terror to walk into a community where you feel like you're gonna be the outsider and you don't know what to say or do or how to fit in. And I just wanna describe this radical goodness in such a way that, that maybe something inside of you would be courageous enough to lean in and to give it a try. My second goal this morning is to challenge those of us who know the goodness of a Jesus-centered community to be energized with a vision to help those on the outside find belonging. 
You know, Andy Stanley is famous for saying, maybe famous to some, uh, for saying that often as, as a Christian community, uh, we go to people and we have, we're, we're, we're the gatekeepers, we feel like. And so we say, hey, you gotta believe these things and these are the, things, these are the right things to believe and right belief is incredibly important. He says, but and then we basically say, once you believe these things, come, come and belong. But then if we look at the ministry of Jesus, Andy points out, Jesus comes to a group of people and he says, come belong and let's process what you believe. And I just wanna encourage us to be these kinds of people that have a vision to create more space at our table for those that are on the outside. And then I think my last hope or goal this morning is for all of us to grow in our desire and our ability to cultivate human connections that lead to belonging, healing, and transformation. That's kind of my hope. And so the burning question below all of that is what's so compelling about Christian community? In other words, maybe if you've been a venture for a while and you know that we're doing block parties and you know that we're talking about trying to create some space in your community where you would invite neighbors to that, you may be asking the question, but what's so compelling about that? What's so, what's so real and rich about that that people can't find anywhere else? I'm, I'm, I wanna hopefully lean into that question a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, to start, um, you know, we get some hints from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you see that God um, gathered a group of people called the Jews, Abraham, and then his whole family, and he gathered them together. And then they went into slavery in Egypt, and then he rescued them out of Egypt. And when he rescued them out of G Egypt, it says that he took them on a journey and he led them with a fire at night. So the Lord was with them. He led them with a fire at night and a cloud during the day. And that's how they knew where to go. He just led them. But there comes this part of the story in Exodus that's this radical kind of turning place. And what happens there is that Moses gets the law, the ways and the word of God. And he gets the law. And while he's getting the law straight from God himself, the people rebel and they make a golden calf, a false God. And they begin to worship and sing songs and dance and celebrate a false God in the middle of their community. This is the community that just was drawn out of slavery. And Moses comes out and he sees it and he begins to have a conversation with God. And God looks at the people he just rescued and he begins to have this conversation with Moses. And he says, you know, I don't know if this is gonna work. How about we do this, Moses? How about you guys just go on your own way and, and, you know, maybe I'll send an angel, but, but I'm not gonna go. I can't be with this group that wants to worship this false God. I can't do that. And Moses leans into the heart of God and he has a conversation with God. And I wanna show you toward the end of the conversation what he says to God. This is in Exodus 33, verse 13. This is the end of his conversation where he's pleading with God that God would be with his people. He says this in verse 13 in Exodus 33. Now, therefore, Moses says, if I've found favor in your sight, or another way to say it, if I found grace in your sight, please show me your ways. In other words, Moses says, he's changing the conversation. He's having a conversation with God about whether God's gonna walk with the people. And then he shifts the conversation. He says, hey, hey, if, if, let's just not worry about them right now. If I've found grace in your sight, 
then please show me your ways. Show me your thoughts. Show me your words. Show me your plan and your actions on planet earth. Show me your ways, he says. That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. They belong to you, Moses says. And then God responds, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's a huge phrase. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? See what Moses is getting at? He's going, if you're not with us, if your presence isn't here, then we're just another club. We're just another crew of people. And that's not gonna work. That's not gonna work when we get into the land and there's giants in the land. It's not gonna work when we have obstacles. It's not gonna work when we're hurting and we're broken. We need you, Moses seems to be saying. Maybe I would say it like this. The very real and tangible and noticeable presence of God marks the community of those who follow Jesus. The very real, tangible, and noticeable presence of God marks the community of those who follow Jesus. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you may see that in, you, in your meet responses to push back and go, okay, wait, wait, I know in my head, theologically, God is here. I, I, I've been taught that he's always here, but I've also been kind of taught that I may not notice it, I may not feel it, and it may not be seen but I just have to believe it's true. I don't think that would have cut it for Moses. Imagine if God said to Moses, hey Moses, here's the deal. You're not gonna really notice I'm here. You're not gonna feel I'm here. Uh, it's not gonna be very obvious that I'm here, but I am here. I think Moses would have been like, that's not gonna work. We need you to be here in a real and a tangible and in a noticeable way. And so then we ask, then how, what is that? look like? What does that feel like? If that's what makes us a distinct people, and if you're asking questions of faith, what is it you should be looking for that would, that would show you that the living God is in this space and in the community that you're curious about? Now we get hints about that from the ministry of Jesus. In other words, Jesus, God became flesh, became a man, 2000 years ago, walked the planet for 30 years. And we can see from his life, some hints about what it looks like to have the real tangible presence of Jesus. In other words, we see that he gathers a family when he calls his disciples. And these are disciples that come from all different kinds of walks of life. Some are tax collectors and cheats and traitors. Some are angry young men like James and Peter, the sons of thunder. I relate to them a little bit. They seem to have some under the current uh, frustration with the world around them. And, and you've got prostitutes. You've got recovering legalistic Pharisees. And Jesus gathers them into a family. 
Then you see his first miracle, his first act on the ministry is that he shows up to a wedding and a wedding back then was a week long party and they're celebrating and they're drinking wine and all of a sudden the wine runs out and the party, the, the wedding celebration is about to end and Jesus comes on the scene and he gives them new wine so that the celebration can continue. We see that he meets a woman with sexual shame, five husbands and a reputation in her town of sexual shame. And Jesus shows up and he meets her and he talks to her and he offers her living water. We see that when Jesus talks about the, the, the core way to obey the law of God, which is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength and then love your neighbor of yourself. And, and of course, there's a lawyer in the audience. Anybody a lawyer in the house this morning? You know, the person who wants their terms just right. And the lawyer says, but who's my neighbor? In other words, who doesn't count? Who do I not have to include at my table? And he says, let's take the person, the Samaritan, who's as far away from you as you can imagine believes different than you, acts different than you, persecutes you, has no common ground with you, that's your neighbor. And then we see on the night that Jesus is gonna give his life on the cross, he gets his guys together and he shares a meal with them. And then he gets down in the dirt and he washes their feet. And he says, hey, listen, in the world, Leaders are in charge and they tell you what to do. But in this family, in this community, we serve one another. And if you wanna be like me, wash each other's feet. My wife won't even touch my feet, so that's a big deal. Then he lays down his life, then he rises again. And you know what's interesting about all of that? Is when we look at that, we see the tangible, noticeable, work of God in his community. And we kind of see the things, the ripple effects coming out of that life in ministry. But very similar to, to Exodus 33, Jesus looks his guys in the eyes and he says, I may not go with you. And now this time he's not saying he's not gonna go with them because they've rebelled and worshiped a false God. This time he died on a cross, he rose again, and now he's about to ascend and he tells them, listen, I'm leaving. But he's got, a, he's got a loaded promise for the community of faith, a loaded promise for those who follow Jesus. Look at what he says in Acts 1.8. He says, but you, and this is a collective to 120 people, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were at. And in Judea, that's the surrounding area. And in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. Loaded in that idea is you're gonna create more family around the message of Jesus, he says. But you're not gonna go alone the God of the universe isn't just gonna be a cloud in the sky and a fire by night, but he's gonna crawl into your skin and he's gonna live inside of you. And then the Holy Spirit does fall. And then Peter gets up and preaches the first sermon post the resurrection of Jesus. And 3,000 people hear about Jesus being crucified on a cross for their sin. 
They're called to turn and give their life to him. And 3,000 say, I wanna be a part of that family. And look at what this family does. Look at how this family operates. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Do you see that? Jesus is on planet earth. He gathers his family. He dies for the sins of the world. He's risen again. He says, I'm always going to be with you in the power of the Holy Spirit. People decide they wanna put their faith in Jesus. They become part of the family. And what does this family do immediately? They fellowship, they're devoted. We would say it like this, they were captivated by the message of Jesus. They were captivated by, by the things that Jesus had done and said. So the apostles were teaching it and they were in awe of it. When's the last time you found yourself in awe of the words, the thoughts and the life of Jesus and let that shape the way you did life with other people. They were captivated by the message of Jesus. They were captivated by the redemptive work of Jesus. This, this breaking of bread, most scholars believe that when they got together, they just weren't eating, but they were actually breaking the bread and celebrating the work of the cross. This is something they did together again and again and again, as often as you think of me and remember me, Jesus had said. And so they're there breaking the bread, celebrating that, that Christ came and he was crushed on the cross and his body was ripped apart. And they were in awe of the work of Christ in their midst. And then they were captivated by the activity of the Holy Spirit among them. They were in awe that the Holy Spirit was at work, that he was doing things through people in their midst. This is what makes us so distinct. This is how we know the presence of God is involved. His words, his thoughts, his ways are shaping our language. We are, we are blown away. We can't go a second without being captivated by the fact that his ripped body means my righteousness. You know that, right? We sit in this place lifting a voice to God because a God was ripped apart on our behalf so that we could stand in his righteousness. And they were blown away by that and captivated by that. And then they, they saw in an awe of the way the Holy Spirit was at work among them. And then look at what happens next. And all who believed were together. Someone say together. And they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They had a radical togetherness and belonging. A radical togetherness and belonging. I don't know about you, but when I look out into the culture, when I look out into the world around me, I hear a lot of talk about doing good and I hear a lot of talk about justice in the community. I'm, I'm all down for all of that. We need, to, we need to care about those things. But you know what I don't see? I don't see communities meeting the needs of others at great risk to themselves. I don't see that. I don't see people saying, hey, there are vulnerable people here. There are vulnerable children. So we're gonna open up our home and we're gonna make sure that the most vulnerable kids have a seat at my table. You know where I do see that? 
I see it in the church. I see it in the community of faith again and again and again, where people give of themselves at great risk to themselves to meet the needs of others. There's a radical togetherness. Paul presses that togetherness out. If you look at Colossians chapter three, he takes this idea of togetherness and he presses it and includes some other things. Look at this in Colossians three, verse 11. He says here in this family is what he means. There is not a Greek or Jew. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's not barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. These are all demographic groups. They're all identity groups in Paul's time. He says, there's not any of these identity groups, but Christ is all and in all. Now here, what he means is in our community, at our table, this identity group thing is gonna go. At our table, the rich and the poor, we're not gonna talk like that anymore. At our table, we're not gonna talk about the circumcised, those are the in crowd, and the uncircumcised, those are the out crowd. We're not gonna talk like that anymore. I'm so tired of identity politics that says, find your group and then you're pitted against other groups. That's ripping our culture apart. Jesus says in this community, there's a togetherness that's rooted in the identity of Christ. Verse 12, he says then, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Why do you have to be patient? Because unlike any community, we will find outside of the community of faith, you have to fit in and you don't get to bring your brokenness. But the family Jesus is developing in us is one where brokenness is brought to the table. And guess what you and I have to do with each other's brokenness? We have to be patient. He says, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. In other words, rooted in the work of Christ, you must forgive others. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Radical togetherness around the work of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of talk in the culture of wanna bring my full self I don't know anywhere where you can bring your full self outside of the family of Jesus. I don't. Because there's no other place that I know of that allows you to come with your brokenness, be seen, heard, and healed. See, that's important because if there's not healing and transformation, then we're gonna find ourselves just as stuck as we were before we found the community. In other words, bringing our brokenness to this community that's marked by God's presence and His grace, it generates transformed lives. If you flip back to Acts 2, there's one last part of this first church that I think is helpful to lean into. It says in 46, day by day, they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, 
and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved and rescued. They created a culture of celebration that was contagious. They created a, a culture of good news that was attractive to people. You know, we can say the good news of a God who rescues broken people, but if our communities, if our backyard parties and block parties, if those don't look like good news to other people, then the message we have to give is gonna fall. The celebration was contagious and more seats were created at the table again and again and again. So we asked what's so compelling about Christian community, the real tangible, noticeable presence of Jesus fleshed out by the work of Jesus and a group of people obsessed with his words, obsessed with his thoughts in awe of his broken body that made them whole. The apostle John, who is the oldest living apostle, by the way. He's the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. He lived into his old age. Most of the apostles were persecuted and then killed. But the apostle John grows into old age. And at the end of his life, he writes kind of a love letter to his people to kind of say what his heartbeat is for them. And I think he gets at in this last verse we're gonna read, he gets at the heartbeat of what's so compelling about our community and about the spaces we create together when we do life together outside of these walls. Look at what he says. John says, that which froze from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, we heard with our physical ears, we saw with our physical eyes and we touched with our hands, Jesus. That's what he's saying. That life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was in the Father and was made manifest or real to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, I touched him and I saw him. And I am telling you about him, not just so that you have some information about a God who loves you, but that you would with us touch, see, and hear Jesus. And the big promise that's loaded in that experience is verse four. I'm writing these things so that our joy, my joy, your joy, our joy would be complete. God cares about our joy. He's passionate about our joy and he has loaded it into our community. 
And when we create space at our table, we're inviting people to have a complete full joy where they bring their full self and find the healing and transformation that only Jesus can provide. So we're gonna respond in worship in a second, but I don't want us to move too quickly right now because I think there are many of us who have more seats at our table and we have people that need to be there and we need to pray and ask God to figure out a way to get them to sit at our table and enjoy the gift that is our community with Jesus. And then I think there are some of us, we have a good community and, but we're kind of cool that it's, we're all in the right chair and it's we're good. Like, hey, this is nice. And I'm kind of a little worried someone's gonna mess that up. Anybody thought like that? You know, if you create more space at your table, they will mess it up. And that'll be the most beautiful thing that ever happened is that someone brought their brokenness at your table and they got to see Jesus there. So we're gonna respond in this and it's all about Jesus. You already know this song, but we're gonna press in and say, Jesus, we wanna have a tangible, noticeable experience with you. And we wanna invite others to be at this table with us. Would you do that in Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.